Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And I think they all fit quite squarely into their respective categories. Jim, let's start with the good, as we always love to do. And one of the issues that has just been building and building and building and the pandemic and being out of school and virtual learning certainly added a lot of oxygen to this fire. School choice, giving parents options uh, as to how to educate their kids and state governments, particularly in redder states, uh, saying, yeah, we're going to help you do that uh, in terms of uh, providing funding for that as well. And so the latest state to do this is Iowa. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds signing legislation on Tuesday. According to the Des Moines Register, uh, Reynolds inked her signature on a law that will allow any Iowa family to use taxpayer funds to pay for private school tuition at a cost of $345 million annually to the state once fully phased in. Democrats, of course, saying this is going to uh, starve vital funding for the public schools. However, there's going to be additional education funding as a result of this in order to pay for parents to have this uh, other option. Corey DeAngelis, who is one of the most uh, active activists on this issue for school choice, talking about uh, how Arizona did this last year, West Virginia has done this, Iowa is doing this, and then he says Texas, Florida, Utah, Arkansas, Oklahoma, and Nebraska, all considering universal school choice as well. So, Jim, this is something uh, conservatives have talked about for a long time. The conditions could not be more ripe for it. They've got the votes to do it in a lot of these states, and we're finally going to see what impact these ideas can have. Indeed, Greg. And I think one of the things that is uh, easily overlooked here is that maybe next to Florida, Iowa is the, and maybe maybe you can throw in Ohio, Iowa is the state that used to be considered actually pretty democratic, never mind a swing state. Uh, in fact, I, w- I just looked it up from 1988 to 2012. The Democratic candidate won every presidential race with the exception of 2004, George W. Bush beat Kerry and it was very narrow. They were generally close, but this was considered a pretty democratic state. Uh, and in fact, dem- the you know Iowa had a democratic governor from 1999 to 2011 before Tom Vilsack became the semi-permanent Secretary of Agriculture. <laughs> um, so this is this is a once, or I guess within recent memory, a purplish blue state. A uh, lot of unions, and it was not the kind of state you'd expect to see a sweeping school choice proposal go through. Uh, you know, this is one of those states where maybe you can attribute to the more populous turn in the country. It certainly accelerated uh, during Trump's presidency and, and recent elections. I was looking deep red. And when you are deep red, you have an expanded legislative majority where you can start enacting, you know, significant conservative reforms occasionally from the uh, more irritable populists or, or right wing types. You'll say, oh, what is conservatism ever conserved? Well, school choice is a pretty darn big deal in terms of its influence, impact on people's lives, in terms of opportunities, and in terms of pushing back against a large bureaucratic and unaccountable public school system. And this is another state where it's taking a big step. To, you know, um, you could point to this, you can point to gun policies. There are actually a lot of conservative reforms that gained right to work. They gain traction at the state level. And maybe this just kind of reflects how much uh, American politics is dominated by whoever the president is at the time. But these can have really big impacts on people's lives. So good for Iowa Republicans and good for the state of Iowa. Boy, doesn't it feel nice to be giving credit to a state instead of denou- denouncing it? <laughs> it's, 
nothing to do with the caucus. So uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think the uh, the, the populism growth in the GOP certainly uh, had a big impact in Iowa. I think the Trump factor there is clearly uh, a major factor in the shift of that state politically. But you know, the argument you always get in response to this is, "Wow, you guys just hate the public schools." No, no, we don't. We want good public schools. But the best way to get good public schools is to have competition. People try and try and try to make changes, and the entrenched bureaucracy is a lot of time. We saw it here in Virginia just a couple of years ago. Don't want to uh, to hear about changes, and so giving parents that option uh, to send their kids somewhere else will force those schools uh, to make uh, changes to become more competitive and, and be better at what they do. So that can only be good, I think, uh, across the board. Unfortunately, one of those states that's not moving in that direction is Virginia. Uh, even in the House, which is controlled by Republicans uh, down in Richmond, the Republicans even on that committee basically denigrating the idea. So I don't think it's going to happen in Virginia this year, which is highly disappointing and was a major uh, goal for Glenn Youngkin and uh, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears. But uh, nonetheless, uh, good job, Iowa, and we'll see what other states go down this road. All right, on to our bad martini now, Jim. And for that, we head to the studios of MSNBC. No big surprise. Uh, Joe Scarborough speaking with New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Because, Jim, if there's anyone who's been inconvenienced by the flood of illegal immigration at our border, it's obviously New York City. It's not the Texas border towns. It's not the state of Texas. It's not Arizona or New Mexico or California. It's New York City, uh, which is dealing with the influx of people, sometimes from uh, red state governors. But uh, even though he doesn't quite say it here, I think he's even more frustrated by the federal government doing it. Uh, And here is uh, Eric Adams complaining about uh, what he and other mayors are being asked to deal with. I believe that when I took the trip to the El Paso, you could see firsthand the impact of how it not only uh, harmed the foundation of El Paso, but look at Chicago, Houston, Washington, New York City. This is just unfair for cities to uh, carry the weight of a national problem. We're going to open four more uh, Hotels, emergency hotels. We had to open Herc's. Uh, this is a major financial impact on New York City and cities across this country that are receiving a brunt of it. Again, Jim, if he's including the federal government in that, uh, maybe he has something to talk about. But just you know, a few plane loads or bus loads or whatever uh, Greg Abbott is sending his way. Uh, he's got the proportion of this completely backwards compared to what our southern states along the border are having to deal with every single day. Yeah, look, we should also point out that as though it has mostly been Republican governors like uh, uh, Abbott and DeSantis that were be- and uh, Doug Ducey that were best known for doing this. Uh, it was also Jared Polis. Uh, at least he was doing it for a while. Now, he said everything was voluntary and that they were basically trying to connect these people with uh, assistance groups in cities like New York and Chicago. Uh, Mayor Adams and uh, Mayor Lightfoot screamed bloody murder over it. And after a couple of days, Polis said, oh, OK, maybe we're not going to do that after all. Also, it's worth noting that Katie Hobbs has said she's going to keep Doug Ducey's system in place, at least for a while, while they're reviewing it. Uh, She also emphasizes that this is all voluntary and that there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, taking a bunch of migrants in your state and shipping them somewhere else where they can be somebody else's problem. I will give a little bit of credit to to New York City Mayor Adams. Yes, it is indeed not fair for big cities like Washington and New York and Chicago to have to carry the weight of the migrant crisis. 
I also think it's not fair to medium-sized cities or to small cities or to small towns or any place else to have to deal with this. The uh, hilarious uh, Twitter voice, Iowa Hawk, you know, summed it up very well. Quote, I think we can all agree that only Laredo, Texas has the economic might and resources to deal with this issue. And it's also time for Nogales, Arizona and Columbus, New Mexico to step up and do their part. Um, look, you know, all of these cities, no, no, very few cities are really well equipped for a whole bunch of people coming all at once with very little beyond the shirts on their back. Lots of children, lots of uh, very vulnerable people coming here needing help. Uh, you know, your your heart goes out to these people. You, you know, I think basic, you know, humanitarian uh, and and some would say Christian decency requires us to help take care of these people. We can't just let them starve in the street. But at the same time, it is really, really unfair for, you know, large portions of Central America to basically see America as the place to send all of their uh, impoverished and and disgruntled and troubled, uh, those disgruntled with their regimes, those frightened by gang violence, et cetera, et cetera. We are not the pressure valve for the, you know, dysfunction of other countries. It is not fair to expect us. And particularly when you see waves of unaccompanied children coming over here, no, Central America, we are not running a daycare center. You cannot send unaccompanied children here. We're going to send them right back as soon as we can because they're not our responsibility. They're your responsibility. We have a legal immigration process. It is among the most generous in the world. More than a million people become legal U.S. citizens every year. That is the process for do this. You cannot become an American just by showing up. And oh, by the way, the administration's constant invocation of a path to citizenship, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, amnesty only makes this worse because people look at hear that and say oh i have a chance to get in on this i'd better get to america as quick as i can before i miss out on the opportunity mayor adams I, you know, i'm glad you're invoking the federal government please start saying to the to the biden administration the first step on the problem is to stop them from getting over the border you know of all the things donald trump has ever said if you don't have a border you don't have a country may have been the most succinct and insightful so, look, I'd love to see this, you know, this uh, gets, you know, gain some traction. It's, it says something that all of a sudden all these Democrats who kept invoking the uh, inscription on the Statue of Liberty now all of a sudden are saying, look, we just don't have the resources. There's just no room. When other places did it, it was considered xenophobia, hatefulness, anti-Latino attitudes, blah, blah, blah. You know, please, uh, please, Adams, don't don't bother complaining about Republicans. Don't bother complaining about other governors of other states. Talk to the Biden administration and say, hey, what if we stemmed the problem at the border instead of having to deal with this once the people are here? Man, I feel like standing and applauding on that one, Jim. Very, very well said. Yeah, I'd love to see Adams and some of these other folks ask, hey, why did these uh, huge swaths of people start coming to the border as soon as you came to office with your promises of no deportations and a path to citizenship? Very curious. All right, on to our crazy martini now. And for that... We go to Adam Schiff. Just yesterday, we talked about Kevin McCarthy's very strong explanation as to why Schiff and Eric Swalwell are not going to be on the Intelligence Committee. He's also booting Ilhan Omar from Foreign Relations, which I think is a good move. Uh, Adam Schiff not liking this. Eric Swalwell went to the podium on the House side yesterday and uh, talking about, you're not going to like it that I have this much extra time on my hands. <laughs> well, no, but China might. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so Adam Schiff instead went to TikTok, which Congress literally just banned from government devices because it's an intelligence tool of the CCP. So, you know, if you need more proof that he doesn't belong on the Intelligence Committee, this is probably it. But here's what Adam Schiff said to gaslight the country. 
Hello, I'm Congressman Adam Schiff with some troubling news. Today, Kevin McCarthy removed me from the House Intelligence Committee, all for doing my job, for holding Trump accountable and standing up to the extreme MAGA Republicans. We knew it would be bad when the Republicans took over, but it's far worse than we expected. But I can promise you this, this is not the end of my fight for our democracy. This is just the beginning. Please join us and contribute today. Thank you. So not a lot that's true there, but uh, the the fundraising pitch comes at an interesting time because today, Jim, Adam Schiff uh, makes it official that he is running for Senate in California. Uh, The seat is, well, it's up in 2024. Dianne Feinstein has not said that she's officially retiring. Everybody expects her to, given some of the cognitive issues she's uh, apparently had here over the past few years. Katie Porter, another uh, member of the Democratic Caucus in Congress, has already announced her candidacy. Uh, Ro Khanna's rumored to be running, so we'll see who all gets in here. But uh, nothing like a politician turning a, a supposed slight on the House side into a fundraising tool for his Senate bid, which will probably be pretty expensive. First of all, Greg, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for TikTok to be banned from government devices and then for members of Congress to start recording TikTok videos, I assume through their personal or, uh, you know, uh, campaign accounts, uh, not with any type of government, you know, official congressional office account. Uh, but, he, you know, Schiff deserves a lot of credit for that. The idea, like, you know, every, there's a reason that they basically said, look, this is basically my understanding of TikTok is that it basically vacuums up all of your data and sends it right back to its Chinese corporate headquarters, which, oh, by the way, is effectively an extension of the Chinese government. Um, are they going to use, you know, God knows what they're going to use this for, but it's not going to be used for anything good, right? Try, try to think of what what good ways the Chinese government is going to use a whole bunch of data about, you know, where you've been, where you travel to, all your personal emails, all that kind of stuff. More secondly, where he says, ah, oh, you know, this is so much worse than we expected. I mean, weren't, weren't the Republicans openly saying they were going to get him off the Intelligence Committee? Yes. Shouldn't be all that surprised. And this guy works in intelligence? He's that's up there. Yeah, just making sure. <laughs> third thing that jumps out about this is that I kind of wonder how how much warm, fuzzy feelings there are among about Schiff, both de- amongst Democrats nationally and amongst Democrats in California. You know, look, we looked at, you know, his statements of, ah, there's a mountain of smoking gun evidence of, you know, Donald Trump colluding with the Russians. And then the Mueller report comes out. Says that? Nope. You know, no, no, no concrete evidence. Nothing to prove it. And I wonder how many Democrats get angry at Schiff. We talked about this earlier. Like Schiff, by being on the Intelligence Committee, you're seeing stuff not everybody else does. So people tend to think, ooh, he must have seen something that, that, you know, some smoking gun, something really clear that makes this incontrovertible. And then all of a sudden we find out, well, no, no, that was just Schiff, you know, mouthing off, just, uh, you know, saying how he interpreted things, not how what the evidence actually pointed to. And I wonder if some Democrats look at that and say, Hey, you jerk, you got our hopes up. Um, now, obviously, this is California politics. It is going to be uh, fighting tooth and nail. Uh, already, Porter wants it. I'm sure there's at least, uh, basically, for a really long time, Barbara Boxer and uh, Dianne Feinstein had the two seats. And there just weren't that many opportunities for an uh, ambitious uh, Democratic po- politician in California. Uh, so I suspect Schiff, you know, there'll be a lot of other Democrats who will uh, have past rivalries or grievances with Schiff and all that kind of stuff. I, it would not surprise me to see Adam Schiff fall flat on his face in this primary. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, probably doesn't help to be a white male. Probably doesn't. But I, I also think he's just best known as the guy who was insisting that, you know, Trump was going to get arrested and that there was this, 
huge amount of evidence and that there just wasn't. And everybody's kind of like, what, what were you looking at? What were you pointing to? Um, you know, it's a bit like Geraldo and Al Capone's vault or something like that. So I, I hope this ends with him uh, flopping miserably. Um, I, I do wonder how much there's how many Democrats kind of resent him for hyping up uh, the Russiagate stuff. But I guess only time will tell, Greg. Yeah, so we got lying about Russiagate versus uh, the congresswoman who keeps talking about her nine-year-old daughter can't sleep at night due to fears of climate change. So wonder where she's getting that from. So clearly the best of the best are running in California. The good news is one of them won't be in Congress at all in a couple of years. And I think you're probably right that it might be Adam Schiff. But uh, we will see. But uh, if anybody deserves uh, a ticket home permanently, it's him. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, good luck, California. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what Republicans might be on the docket there. But while uh, Schiff and Porter try to shift to the Senate, Jim, in the NFL, there's another potential shift uh, being talked about. And that is because the Jets have hired Nathaniel Hackett, most recently the Broncos head coach, but before that, the Packers offensive coordinator, in conjunction with the fact that the Packers are willing to consider trading Aaron Rodgers within the AFC. There's a lot of speculation that Rodgers could end up with the Jets. Now, as a longtime Bears fan, I will tell you uh, from Packer quarterbacks hemming and hawing, they're not going anywhere until they actually go somewhere. But when they do go somewhere, <clears throat> Brett Favre, they do go to the Jets. So is this something you would like to see, uh, a nearly 40-year-old uh, Aaron Rodgers coming to East Rutherford? Well, at the risk of using my phrase, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, my first thought is, you know you're getting old, Greg. When you see the headline, uh, Hackett coming to Jets, Packers quarterback coming, possibly coming to Jets, and your headline ugh, I have a bad feeling about this. I've seen this before, and it didn't work out before. Before, everyone was talking about, ugh, Nathaniel Hackett as offensive coordinator to the Jets. Back during the Chad Pennington days, I was complaining about Paul Hackett, Nathaniel <laughs> Hackett's father, being the offensive coordinator for the Jets. The Jets were pretty good during that time, but I remember just, you know, with my dad and my brother fuming about the play calling, all kinds of, you know, running it up the middle uh, when everybody was expecting it. It just felt very uncreative, cookie-cutter, predictable, stale, um, and, uh, you know, not utilizing the talent as best as it could be. And, uh, you know, eventually the Jets got rid of him, and my sense is like, okay, great, finally, I'll never have to worry about Hackett being the, the offensive coordinator of the Jets ever again. <laughs> well, I don't have to worry about that Hackett, but now I have to worry about a different Hackett. Yes, he did have success, some of his best success, when he was offensive coordinator for the Packers for a few years. Um, that was one of the reasons he was hired by the Broncos and had one of the quickest and most ignoble uh, tenures of an NFL coach in recent memory. My ad, having seen Brett Favre with the Jets, were a very up and down year. Yes, they had a very great start. Favre is a very exciting player. My understanding was that the Jets' honest receivers, honest to goodness, are having a hard time catching the ball because, quote, he threw it too hard, unquote. <laughs> Oh, it hurts my fingers. I, I'm not used to catching balls. You know. um, there were some great years, some great games with Brett Favre, but uh, by the, he just collapsed by the end of the year. Um, combination of, you know, getting hit and all that stuff. Favre was, you know, by the end of the year, he looked washed up. And then he went to the Vikings and had two more pretty darn good years uh, over there. So I've seen this movie before. I'm not itching to see a Hall of Fame Packers quarterback come to the Jets for, you know, one or two more years. You know, a lot of this will depend on the Rodgers contract. What kind of trade compensation did the Packers want? Does Rodgers want to play for a year, two years, three years? You know, there's a whole bunch. That having been said, hiring uh, Hackett, who is seen as, you know, Rodgers' buddy, 
um, is definitely seen as a sign that the Jets want to sign Aaron Rodgers, and I fear we're going down this path. You know, out of all the options in the offseason, I'd love to see Lamar Jackson. I don't think I don't think Baltimore is going to let him go. I was not particularly enamored with the idea of signing Derek Carr, but there was a lot of buzz in that direction. Um, and I think Jimmy Garoppolo, look, when he's healthy, he's, he's fine. He's great. But I think there's a big question about whether he's, you know, got all the durability of a Fabergé egg. So uh, I'm, I'm my usual depressed self, which is about where I should be in January uh, of, a, of the NFL offseason. Yeah, this is championship weekend, which means it's been 12 years exactly since uh, your team and my team have been in the championship game. And so that's pretty bleak. Neither of us have won a playoff game since. Today is 37 years since the Bears won the Super Bowl. Exactly. I will give you this advice, though. If you end up with Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback, don't introduce him to any female reporters. And if they do meet, make sure he has a phone that can't take pictures. Yeah, you know, my attitude would be that uh, if the Jets still had Sam Darnold, uh, after his infamous mono infection, I'm sure his attitude with Rogers joining back. Like, Look, he's a great player. I'd love to have him on my team as long as he had all his shots. <laughs> oh, it's Rogers. He hasn't had all his shots. So. <laughs> oh, controversy. And then and you, then you could spend the next offseason or two wondering if he's going to come back, like the, all the Packers fans do. But uh, anyway, fun to watch, and we'll uh, we'll see what happens in the championship games this weekend. And Jim, I will see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. If you don't already, tell a friend about us as well. Thanks very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Jim is at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.